calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, lovely listeners. Um, I'm going to be real with you. I am feeling much better as far as my sinus infection goes, but I sound nasally again because I've spent the last hour crying. (laughs) If you know me, you know I am a total crybaby, and if I'm feeling anything too much, I'm just going to start sobbing immediately. I've cried enough on the show that you probably are aware of that already. Um, But just to kind of give you a little bit of insight as to what's going on in my life, I'm feeling very overwhelmed at the moment. Um, It's a really big undertaking doing this show on my own and not just taking it over, but really having a desire to make this show a bigger part of my life. A lot of you know, Keegan and I met in film school. My dream, you know, when I was 17, 18, 19, 20-ish, was to be an actress. And I started doing voiceover work, and I worked for a company for a little bit where I did voiceover frequently for them, and that company went under. And so that's how I started getting into nannying to be able to support myself And nannying is tough. For anyone who takes care of children or takes care of someone else's family or anything like that, you know the emotional toll it takes on you after a while to be so completely available to someone else's needs and how it can really take a toll on your sense of authenticity and your sense of self and how you take care of yourself. During the pandemic, I was unemployed for seven months and probably the lowest I've felt. It had probably been about 10 years since I've felt a constant sense of anxiety and deep, deep depression. And I'm not sharing all of this with you for you to be worried about me or feel bad. I'm honestly not looking for any sort of sympathy or anything like that. But I'm trying to be real and honest because I want this show to be real and honest. I want 
all of you to feel that I love and respect and appreciate all of you so much because I do. And I think that in return, you deserve to know a little bit about me as well. With all of that, I just want all of you to know from the very bottom of my heart how much all of this means to me. And I would love nothing more than to give all of my time and energy to all of you to this cause that truly feels like is what I was meant to do with my life. And I feel, I'm getting emotional again, I feel I've been given an opportunity, I've literally been given a voice to be able to hopefully make a difference in some people's lives. And I want to continue to do that. And I I want to make the world a better place. And I think I'm feeling really stuck because I don't feel like I have all the time in the day to be able to feed myself the way that I want to. And that's where my frustration lies. If any of you ever actually listen to the outro of any of these episodes, you'll know that usually I say something like, the best way you can possibly support us or support me is by leaving a review and things like that. And I I wanted to say it now just because now more than ever, I truly would love your support so much. And the reviews that I've been receiving recently have been absolutely phenomenal Um, and this week I also went on Instagram and I asked all of you how you go about finding your podcasts. And most of the answers were Spotify. Thank you, Spotify. Uh, searching, you know, female hosts or feminism and things like that. And it makes me so surprised and happy to think that my little show would pop up first for some of you or would show up close to the top and, That's incredibly motivating to me, by the way. And if there's anyone in your life that you think might enjoy this, even though it's a bit chaotic right now, have them start with some of the earlier episodes. Um, If there's anyone in your life that you think would enjoy this, the best ways that you can help right now would be to share this podcast on your social media, tweet about us, post on your story about us, tag us. Um, I love to be interactive with all of you on social media. And also, if you haven't done so already, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And a lovely listener let me know this week that you can also rate on Spotify. I am a dummy and thought that that was just carried over from Apple Podcasts because it's like pretty much the same number. Um, So that's another way that you can really, really help. So now that I've rambled, I'm feeling a little bit better. I feel a little bit less choked up. And I'm ready to talk about a feminist favorite. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm going to take you all on a bit of a trip through time. I'm going to take you back to your angry neighborhood feminist the first year, circa 2018, maybe early 2019, I covered Mary Wollstonecraft, and I was so excited by her story. I was so enamored by who she was. For those of you who don't remember, Mary Wollstonecraft is sometimes called the mother of feminism. She was the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was published in 1792, and that laid forth the argument of women's emancipation in a patriarchal society. She was incredibly bright. She was a very open thinker. She was open to all sorts of ways of life, and she was somebody that I think really exemplifies what it is to be a true intersectional feminist all the way through history. If you don't remember, I will remind you, but Mary Wollstonecraft actually passed away when she was 38 years old after giving birth to a child who was also named Mary. And this Mary would go on to be none other than Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. With it being spooky season, I figured I would give you a spooky feminist favorite. So today, I am talking about Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, Mary Shelley. Not only was her mother incredibly intelligent and known for her literary success, her father was William Godwin, who wrote the famous Inquiry Concerning Political Justice in 1793. He was known to be an advocate of free love, he was very radical, and he and Mary Wollstonecraft had a very fascinating and intellectually filled life, if that's a word or phrase. So Mary, like I said, passed away after giving birth to her daughter, Mary. I always love it when daughters are named after their mothers. And I was making this argument to Max recently that I think that a daughter should be able to be a junior as well. So she would be Mary Jr. You know, my dad and his dad and his dad and his dad were all Francis or Frank. And they were all juniors. And my middle name is Francis. And I always felt like, I was carrying on this family name in a way, and I wanted to be like, well, I'm Francis the fifth or sixth or whatever it was. And it kind of pissed me off that for some reason, because I was a girl, I couldn't carry on this name in some way. So I always really love it, though, when a daughter is dedicated to their mother, because I think mothers throughout history are often forgotten. So to get more into this terrible childbirth, a midwife had successfully delivered little Mary, but four hours after the birth, Wollstonecraft's placenta had still not been expelled, meaning she was at risk of a fatal hemorrhage. So for those of you who don't know the whole pregnancy giving birth situation, you kind of give birth twice, but only to one baby, usually, unless you're having twins or something. So you have the baby. Your placenta, which is what the baby is made inside of, it's kind of like a little sack, is then expelled after you give birth to the baby. So you do have to push that placenta out as well. But this wasn't happening for Mary Wollstonecraft, and this could be incredibly dangerous, especially in the 1700s when our medical practices were not as advanced as they are today. 
So not only was this placenta stuck inside of her, but it had also shattered, which I can't even imagine. So her husband hired an esteemed doctor who attempted to remove it piece by piece to save her life. This was done by hand, and historians believe he didn't wash his hands before the procedure because that wasn't even practiced at the time. Hello, Typhoid Mary. Though he was able to remove the debris, saving her from hemorrhaging, he also likely introduced bacteria into her body, which caused the infection to kill her 11 days after Mary's birth. Mary was raised to believe that in some way, her birth killed the most brilliant, famous, spectacular mother at the young age of 38. Little Mary was brought to her mother's grave often and at an early age. She even learned to write her own name by tracing the engraving of her mother's name on her headstone, which is just the saddest image in my mind. Because her parents were literary geniuses, of course her entire life revolved around the literary arts. Her father encouraged her to learn to read and write at a very early age by writing letters for him. Her favorite pastime when she was a kid was writing stories. She would even have her first poem published when she was only 10 years old. She was also surrounded by many influential minds at the time when she was a child, and she was able to soak in their conversation to educate herself. I like that her father seems to really cherish his daughters a lot, and it seems like William really liked that Mary was around with his friends having these conversations. I think that it made him feel very proud to have such a bold, smart daughter, and that makes me so happy. In 1812, Mary met her father's friend, Percy Baishi Shelley. The two embarked on a very controversial romance, as Mary was only 14 years old and Percy was 19 at the time. Not only that, but Percy was already married to a 16-year-old named Harriet, for which he had a child with. Percy was around William Godwin because he looked up to him. He saw him as a mentor, and William Godwin also struggled a lot financially after his wife's death, and Percy came from aristocracy and promised him that he would supply him with funds needed and things like that. So William was like, this guy's not so bad, right? Unfortunately, when the time came to pay him, Percy was either unwilling or unable to help William out financially after all, which made William feel incredibly betrayed, and that didn't bode well for the budding romance between Percy and his daughter. So William had actually remarried when little Mary was four years old to another Mary, a woman named Mary Jane Claremont, who already had a daughter named Claire Claremont. And together, Mary Jane and William took care of little Mary, little Claire, and also Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter from her first marriage, Fanny Imlay. So little Mary was not the biggest fan of her new stepmother. Mary Jane was described as quick-tempered and quarrelsome, and Mary detested her. Mary's stepmother also wasn't very fond of Percy as she thought he was too flirty with all three of the female children in the home, which I can't blame her. To me, I feel like I would be pretty upset about that too, especially because all of my daughters are younger than him. 
There was about two years in there where Mary and Percy didn't really see each other. Mary was sent to live in Scotland for a while, which apparently was miserable for her. And it really seems like either her dad was trying to kind of save her from, you know, the appearance of financial hardship, or maybe it was because the stepmom and Mary didn't get along. There isn't really a whole lot known about Mary's life, and I should mention this now. It's because she wasn't really notable as an author until long after her death, even though she was recognized as being an amazing author when she was alive. She seems to be very forgotten for a while. And also, none of her journals from her early years were recovered. So a lot of the information we have about her early life is more so from like the letters her father would write and other people that were involved in her life would write about her. So we don't truly know what her inner thoughts and feelings were about this. But in some of the stories that she did write that we do have some knowledge of, it seems like she was pretty friggin' miserable. Two years later, when Mary was 16 and Percy was 21, they rekindled their little spark there. Mary was enchanted by that generation's literary bad boy and fell head over heels for him. Without her father's knowledge, Mary and Percy began meeting at her mother's grave and taking long walks together, and they fell in love. Now, this may seem weird that Mary would take Percy to her mother's grave to have private time, but I read that her mother's gravesite became like a safe space for her, especially after her father got remarried. She would go there to feel like she could be close to her mom. She would go there to just spend time with her thoughts and be able to write and be who she was. So thanks to Percy's journals, we know that Mary professed her love to Percy on June 26th, 1814. She took Percy to her favorite place. You guessed it, her mother's gravesite and told him that she loved him first, and he immediately reciprocated. When I read this next part for the first time, I was like, how on earth would you know this? But let's go with it. It was either that day or the next that Mary lost her virginity to Percy, and legend has it, they did it in the churchyard by her mother's grave. This is apparently confirmed by Percy's journals, where he wrote that a fantastic thing happened that made him consider that day his new, real, quote, birthday. Such a dude. This is definitely weird, but Mary's life was also super unconventional. The gravesite was also where the couple had spent most of their time getting to know each other. The cemetery was not merely a repository of rotting corpses, but a site of knowledge and connection. It was a place where she read to deepen her literary education and her communication with her mother, and a place where she was indicted into mysteries of sexuality. Literary, familial, and carnal knowledge were all bound together in one place. When Mary finally told her father about her relationship with Percy, he tried to thwart the relationship any way he could, which made Mary very confused because she saw Percy as the embodiment of her parents' liberal and reformist ideas. I mean, Percy was her dad's friend, after all. Because her father didn't approve, the couple ran away together, along with Mary's stepsister Claire, to a journey around Europe starting on July 28, 1814. This left Percy's wife Harriet absolutely heartbroken. It also left her to raise her children on her own. But I don't think Mary and Percy thought they were doing anything wrong, as they both believed in the concept of free love, which at the time was very anti-marriage. 
It was actually because of Mary's mother that Percy held these ideals. He believed that a, quote, system could not well have been devised more studiously hostile to human happiness than marriage. Yikes. He believed that chastity outside of marriage was, quote, a monkish and evangelical superstition. He was an atheist, if that wasn't clear. (laughs) He believed that sexual connection should be free among those who loved each other and last only as long as their mutual love. Love should also be free and not subject to obedience, jealousy, or fear. So if we were to apply all of that to their situation... They were like, what's Harriet's deal? Why does she care so much? We're just doing this free love thing. He's done with you. He's moving on to me. Bye. Percy also denied that free love would lead to promiscuity and the disruption of human relationships because relationships based on love would generally be of a long duration, which I think is really sweet and a very good point. Though they didn't believe in jealousy playing a part in free love, Mary would often be very depressed when it was obvious that Percy was stepping out on her. Although, it wasn't like she wasn't doing the same. Before they left on their journey, Mary was able to obtain 3,000 pounds, but had left most of the funds for her father and Percy's wife Harriet, who was now pregnant. A quick aside before I go any further... This episode isn't about Percy, but I did find this fact about him very interesting. Percy became a vegetarian the year he met Mary, which he would keep up for the rest of his life. He would write about his belief in vegetarianism's health benefits, the alleviation of animal suffering, the insufficient use of agricultural land, and the economic inequality resulting from the commercialization of animal food production. He even inspired the Vegetarian Society in England in 1847 and directly influenced the vegetarianism of George Bernard Shaw and Gandhi. Now beginning their journey, the couple was essentially penniless. They traveled through France to Switzerland, and as they traveled, they read Mary's mom's books, as well as works by other radical thinkers. They also both kept journals continuing their own writing. The trio eventually settled in England, though it was not smooth sailing. Mary soon became pregnant, and she and Percy learned that Harriet had given birth to a son, who would now be the heir to the Shelley fortune. When Mary reached out to her father, he wanted nothing to do with her. While she was pregnant, Percy would often leave for a while to dodge creditors, leaving Mary alone, although he would also often go on long outings with Mary's stepsister, Claire, and they were definitely sleeping together. Mary eventually gave birth to a two-month premature baby girl who would unfortunately pass away a month after her birth, which absolutely devastated Mary. She was haunted by visions of the baby and fell into a deep depression. Now, I've never been through a miscarriage, but I have spoken to people in my life who have, and I've done some reading about it as well. And I know that for a lot of women, they feel like they weren't working right, like there was something wrong with them that they weren't able to create a healthy baby. And I can imagine in days where science was not as advanced, that that could easily be something that Mary felt really guilty for especially thinking about how her mother passed away. I'm sure there was a lot of weight on her when it came to childbearing. Another thing that couldn't have been easy, by that summer, she had conceived again. Around this time, Percy's grandfather passed away, meaning they came into a little bit more money, and Mary gave birth to their second child, William, who she named after her father and nicknamed Wilmouse, which is so friggin' cute. 
In May 1816, Mary, Percy, William, and Claire traveled to Geneva, where they planned to spend the summer with Lord Byron, an English poet in front of the couple whose affair with Claire left her pregnant. So scandalous. There they spent their time writing, boating on the lake, and talking late into the night. They would amuse themselves with German ghost stories, which prompted Byron to suggest that they each write their own ghost story. But Mary was unable to think of a story. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. During one discussion, they talked about the nature of the principle of life, when Mary noted, perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Once this idea came to her mind, she couldn't sleep, and stayed up all night because of the waking dream of her ghost story. She wrote of this time, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. What was intended to originally be a short story would turn into Mary's first novel, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, published in 1818. Frankenstein is a story about a scientist, Victor Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, <laughs> who tries to undo nature's cycle by bringing the dead back to life. In his isolated laboratory, he manages to achieve this, but is so disgusted by his own monstrous creation that he neglects and abandons it. The monster, now alone, wants to be loved and accepted by the world, but is filled with wrath against his creator and wreaks havoc on his life. He once asked his creator for a female companion to keep him company, which Victor initially agreed to, so he began to create a female counterpart for him. But then eventually he changed his mind, as he worried about them procreating and making more monsters, leading to the annihilation of the human race. To get rid of the female counterpart, he tore the female creation into pieces. This made the monster even more angry, and he swears his revenge. Feminist scholars have seen the moment where Victor Frankenstein tears apart his female monster as a question to how science and development is a masculine enterprise which subjugates women. This was a time when only men could be scientists, which could have led to a fear in Mary that women would be forgotten in this new society. Victor, by bestowing life upon these creatures, usurps his power of God, particularly over women. Another feminist argument is that the act of creation is seen exclusively male, and the female is nothing but a mere vessel that contains the life generated by man. It is suggested that removing the mother from a patriarchal family removes much of the love and tenderness a child needs, and reduces the child to a mere status of an object. Now, Clearly, in this day and age, we know that it is not necessary for a female mother and a male father to be a part of a child's life for them to grow up to be a well-adjusted human being. It just takes a hell of a lot of love. Some scholars also see ties between Mary and her parents in the telling of Frankenstein. It is seen as a mirror to her origin story, as a monstrous baby who wants to be loved by the parents whose life it also destroyed. It's also important to think about the time the book was written. The late 18th century was a period of industrial revolution, with a quick rise of factories and machines. The machines left many women and men unemployed, and left many of the industries from the past centuries insignificant. Basically, capitalism killed it all. 
Of course, a female author can't have any success without readers and critics wondering about the contribution of her husband in the writing of Frankenstein. This is most likely because Percy had made edits to different editions that came out in 1818, 1823, and 1831. On the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, a literary scholar and poet named Fiona Sampson asked, Why hasn't Mary Shelley gotten the respect she deserves? In recent years, Percy's corrections, visible in Frankenstein notebooks held by the Bodleian Library in Oxford, have been seized on as evidence that he must have at least co-authored the novel. In fact, when I examined the notebooks myself, I realized that Percy did rather less than any line editor working in publishing today. Percy and Mary, as well as Claire, returned to England in September of 1816, but tragedy soon occurred once they got home. Mary's sister Fanny had written several letters that terrified her, expressing suicidal intent. This sent Percy on a mission to try to find Fanny before she could do anything to hurt herself. Unfortunately, on the morning of October 10th, 1818, Fanny was found dead in her hotel room, along with a note. Two months later, Percy's wife Harriet was also found dead as a result of suicide. She had drowned herself in the Serpentine Lake. Both suicides were kept quiet. After his wife's death, Percy fought for custody of their children, but Harriet's family fought hard against this, and I don't blame them. To improve his case, Percy's lawyers suggested he marry Mary, even though he was against the idea of marriage. So Percy and a very pregnant Mary finally officially wed on December 30th, 1816 in London at Mary Wollstonecraft's headstone, because of course. Mary's father and her stepmother attended the wedding, ending the rift. Even after their marriage, the court found Percy unfit to raise his other children, and they were sent to live with friggin' clergy members, which makes no sense to me because if Harriet's family wanted the kids, why weren't they staying with Harriet's family? Mary and Percy then moved in with Claire and her new baby Allegra near the River Thames that March. There, Mary gave birth to her third child, Clara, on September 2nd. During this time, Percy was still often away from home to dodge creditors, and the threat of debtors' prison led the family to flee once again. They lived a roving existence after this, never staying in one place for too long. More tragedy would find the Shelley family, as when they were in Italy, both of Mary's children passed away. Clara passed away in September of 1818 in Venice, and William Little Wilmouse passed away in June of 1819 in Rome. People believed that they had died of some sort of fevers that they were unable to treat. The loss of her only remaining children sent Mary into a deep, deep depression, which was mirrored in her writing at the time. She would isolate herself from her husband Percy, who wrote in his notebook, My dearest Mary, wherefore hast thou gone, and left me in this dreary world alone? Thy form is here indeed, a lovely one, but thou art fled, gone down a dreary road, that leads to sorrow's most obscure abode. For thine own sake I cannot follow thee, do thou return for mine. As usual, it didn't take long for Mary to give birth to yet another child, Percy Florence, on November 12th, 1819, which did lift her spirit some, but she says she was always haunted by the memories of her lost children. Even though there was lots of tragedy, Italy, in general, was a great time for the family, as they were part of a group of exiles searching for political freedom. 
and they were around many other intellectuals and creative people to keep them company. It was during this time that Mary wrote the manuscript for her novel Matilda, the historical novel Valperga, Valperga? and the plays Persephone and Midas. Mary was often ill at this time and often suffered from bouts of depression. She always felt a sense of solace when she was writing, though. She also had to cope with the fact that her husband was a philanderer. He had interest in multiple other women, which I can imagine was a huge blow to Mary's self-esteem. But, like I mentioned earlier, Mary was raised in a home that believed in free love and non-exclusionary marriage, so she felt free to make romantic ties of her own among both men and women in her circle. That's right, everybody. Mary Shelley is a bisexual queen! In a letter to her friend Edward Trelawney in 1835, Mary wrote, I was so ready to give myself away, and being afraid of men, I was apt to get towsy-mousy for women. Towsy-mousy is a little-known and very old slang term for vagina and vulva. Feel free to use that in your daily life. Mary and Percy were both friends of Jane and her husband, Edward Williams, and the couples were enmeshed in a bit of a love square? Triangle? Whatever. See, both Percy and Mary had romantic links to Jane, and Mary and Edward were also known to be romantically together. Jane and Percy would also sleep together. Somehow this did nothing to harm the friendship between Percy and Edward, though, as they were like besties. In the summer of 1822, Edward and Percy decided to take a trip on their new sailboat. They reached their destination, but on their voyage back, they hit bad weather, and unfortunately, they never made it home. Jane and Mary turned to each other for comfort and waited for days for their husbands to come home. Ten days after the storm, three bodies washed up on the coast, which were the bodies of Percy, Edward, and their 18-year-old boat boy, Charles Vivina. After her husband's death, she returned to England and her depressive spells weighed heavily on her. Mary moved to Kentish Town in the summer of 1824 to be closer to Jane. It wasn't uncommon at this time for women to live and travel together, which is how the term Boston marriage came to be. And I think I've talked about that before, but there's actually a play by David Mamet called Boston Marriage, and I had an absolutely <sighs> catastrophic uh, scene presentation of that when I was in college. But I really enjoyed the play, and in it I played a closeted lesbian and um, who was living with another woman and essentially a Boston marriage is like when two women back during that time were like we're roommates we're friends and we're living together like we're just spinsters who never got married or widowers and things like that Um, but really it was a cover-up for them to have a relationship and I know that Mary and Jane seem to have had some sort of relationship going on but They didn't have the language then that we do now for sexuality, so it's really hard to say what their relationship was exactly. Um, It could be that they just really needed to support each other and be there as friends. There could have also been some hanky-panky going on. I like to think there's some hanky-panky going on, but I'm not going to read too much into it. It was there that she began working on her novel, The Last Man, and assisted her friends in writing and editing memoirs of her husband, Percy Shelley. She wanted her husband's memory to be forever immortalized. She then met American author John Howard Payne, who intrigued her, but John fell head over heels for Mary. He asked her to marry him, and she responded that after being married to one genius, she could never marry another. 
1827, Mary was involved in a plan to help her friend Isabel Robinson and her partner Mary Diana Dodds, who wrote under the pseudonym David Lindsay, to embark on a life together in France as, quote, husband and wife, or wife and wife. She was able to do this by obtaining false passports for the couple to help them get away. She published several original works between the years 1827 and 1849 and edited the writing of her husband and of her father. During her time as an author, she was often compared to her mother, both in spirit and in appearance, and she lengthened her mother's feminist legacy by helping disadvantaged women. I had already mentioned how she had helped Diana Dodds, and she also financially supported a woman named Georgina, who was disavowed by her husband over an alleged adultery. She was also an incredibly dedicated mother to her only child, Percy Florence. She honored her late husband's wishes and enrolled Percy Jr. in public school and eventually got him into a very prestigious boarding school. To avoid the cost of lodging, Mary moved close to the school so Percy could attend as a day schooler. Percy Jr. went on to study at Trinity College, Cambridge, and dabbled in both politics and law, though he showed no sign of his parents' writing gifts. Percy was also a bit of a mama's boy, and moved back in with Mary after graduating from college in 1841. For two years, the two of them traveled the world as mother and son. In 1848, Percy Jr. married Jane Gibson St. John, which Mary was very happy about as she and her new daughter-in-law got along really well. With the fact that Percy was such a mama's boy, I'm really happy that she was so open to another woman joining the family. She even loved them both so much that she moved in with them in his new house in Sussex at the Shelley's ancestral home and would go with them as they did their own travels abroad. Unfortunately, this wouldn't last long as the last few years of Mary's life was plighted by illness. From 1839 until the end of her life, she suffered from headaches and bouts of paralysis in different parts of her body, which sounds absolutely terrifying. This would then be the end for most of her reading and writing activities. She died at the age of 53 from what doctors now suspect to have been a brain tumor. On the one-year anniversary of her death, her family decided to open her box desk. Inside, they found locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook she shared with Percy, and a copy of his poem, Adonis, with one of the pages folded around a package containing some of Percy's ashes and his calcified heart. Like I mentioned in the beginning, much of Mary Shelley's work was very underappreciated for a very, very long time after her death. It wasn't until the rise of feminist literary criticism during the second wave that Mary Shelley's works, particularly Frankenstein, became acknowledged. Literary scholar Ellen Moores was one of the first to make the tie between the death of Mary's children and the inspiration for Frankenstein. She refers to the novel as a, quote, birth myth, in which Mary comes to terms with her guilt for causing both her mother's death and her perceived failure as a mother. Shelley scholar Anne K. Meller suggested it's a story about, quote, what happens when a man tries to have a baby without a woman. Frankenstein is profoundly concerned with natural as opposed to unnatural modes of production and reproduction. I mentioned this earlier. This is obviously a very old way of thinking. It's a very patriarchal way of thinking that we now know we do not need a mother and father figure as male and female to make good parents. And we can now actually make babies in a lab and it's totally fine. We're not creating monsters or anything. 
But I can imagine at the time when science was just kind of getting its legs and all of these new um, industries and inventions were being created that it would be kind of a terrifying thing to think about. One of the reasons why Mary's works weren't always remembered between the time of her death and the second wave, the 1970s, was because readers and viewers seemed to really miss the feminist and political messaging in her writing. And she was often primarily remembered as Percy Shelley's wife and the author of Frankenstein. And that was it. It could also have to do with Mary's son and daughter-in-law who would censor many of her biographies, making her story seem much more bland and conventional than it actually was. Today, many people discover Mary Shelley through adaptations, be it the first cinematic version in 1910, James Whale's version in 1931, or even Mel Brooks' 1974 Young Frankenstein, one of my favorite movies of all time. Or there's the most recent Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was released in 1994. Throughout the 19th century, she was seen as a one-hit wonder, as most of her work was out of print until the 1990s, obstructing the larger view of her achievements. Now we see her as the mother of gore, the mother of horror, the mother of the gothic literary masterpiece that is Frankenstein, but so much more. And I was so pleasantly surprised to do so much reading about her story because I feel like I've always known a little bit about Mary Shelley peripherally, but never a whole lot about who she was as a person. Now I feel like I've gotten to know both Mary Shelley and her mother, and it's nice to tie the story together. I hope you all enjoyed this solo feminist faves. I am thinking about having my lovely boyfriend Max on the show for this next week's mini episode. So you should be looking forward to that. I think it's going to be really fun. Um, If there is anything that you would like me to cover in the future, please, 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 please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. Direct message me on our Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Also, if there are any guests that you would love to see on the show, whether it be fellow podcasters or feminists or anything like that, I want to hear your suggestions and I want your voices to be heard. I'm going to repeat what I said in the beginning. The best way that you can possibly support the show right now is by doing two things. One, it would be referring to the show to someone that you know that you think would enjoy it. And two, go over to either Spotify or Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. I cannot express how much it truly does make a difference in the business aspect of this show, but of course it also makes me feel really good. And what's the harm in that? All right, everybody. Thank you so much for dealing with my crazy messy ass. That's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. 
New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.